Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. This show is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our good bishop. How was your trip to Baltimore, bishop? It was very good. I always enjoy seeing my brother bishops, uh-huh. uh, some who are good friends of mine. And <laughs> it's a big, it's a busy, you know, full meetings, but we have mass together every day and some of the meals when I don't have like committee meals where uh-huh. you're working over there. It's been, it's, that's always good, but there's a lot of, um, a lot of work too. Yeah. So we the fall USCCB meeting is in Baltimore every year, I guess, other than the COVID year, right? Was Correct. That, that was remote. You mentioned like downtime. Were you able to, to do anything before or after hangout? Yeah. I went a day early okay. um, and I drove and it was pouring down raining like nine of the 10 hours. Uh-huh. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> But I got there on Thursday evening because, no, Friday evening, I'm sorry, Friday. And I went a day early because I went to the Notre Dame Navy game, which was in Baltimore. Oh, wow. And with a lot of my cousins Uh who live in Baltimore. And they had said to me, can you come get get us tickets for the Notre Dame Navy game? So I did. Uh And uh, so it was a nice, just relaxing day before the meetings and of course, Notre Dame won. Mm-hmm. They had a great first half, not such a good second half. Uh-huh. But it was a, it was something. The sun, it was in the seventies, and I was getting oh, wow. a little sunburned. Yeah. And back here in Fort Wayne and South Bend, I think you were getting snow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but well, then the, the temperature dipped like thirty or forty degrees the next day, and it was cold. Yeah. The rest of the week. Well, I know we were anxiously watching the live stream. And we, especially for the elections, because you Oh, were, I thought you meant the Navy Notre Dame. Oh, no, no, no. I was moving back to the, the USACB. Yeah, they had the elections and uh, you were nominated for president and, and for vice president. And it was a very close, close. You got second place to Archbishop Lurie, who, yes. who took the uh, vice president. Was that uh, obviously an honor to be nominated and, and to have so many bishops voting for you? Is it, was it a bummer or a relief? To, to not be vice president of the USCCB? Oh, definitely a relief, okay. a relief, because it would have meant a lot of traveling, uh-huh. you know, a lot of extra work. I mean, I'm open to whatever the Lord calls me to, and yeah. but it was a relief. But I was surprised in the uh, vote for vice president. I mean, there were 10 of us who mm-hmm. were nominees. And, Is um, that limited at 10? or It's limited okay. to 10. So the bishops vote on who, you know, and then the top 10 are, are nominations. Okay. So I really thought, I didn't really, I was surprised to be nominated. And then even more surprised, they had to have that runoff mm-hmm. vote between me and Archbishop Laurie for vice president. And so I was, you know, kind of humbling. And I, I'm glad for Archbishop Laurie, <laughs> although he's probably, <laughs> he, I get to experience the relief. He has more work to do. Yeah. And if the listeners don't know, Archbishop Laurie is the Archbishop of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. But the one who was elected president is Archbishop Timothy Brolio. Mm-hmm. That was no surprise because he was the secretary of the conference, so he had one of the offices okay. on the national level. And he's the Arch- U.S. Archbishop for the military services. Mm-hmm. And he's been the military archbishop for quite a few years, going back to 2007. Okay. But before that, he worked in the Vatican Diplomatic Corps, Hmm. And he's originally from the Cleveland area. But I know, I remember when I 
was ordained a bishop in 2004. I believe he was the apostolic nuncio to Puerto Rico, or the apostolic nuncio to the Dominican Republic and the apostolic delegate to Puerto Rico. But he had served in other countries too. I know he'd spent some time at, at the Vatican Secretariat of State, and he also served in some other countries, I think Paraguay and Ivory Coast. So he has that diplomatic background. But as I said, for the last 15 years, he's been the military archbishop. So he is responsible for the pastoral care of Catholics in the U.S. military around the world. So he has to do a lot of traveling. Mm -hmm. He has a few auxiliary bishops, which helps, especially now that he's going to be president of the USCCB. Yeah. So usually the vice president takes the role of president after their term. That didn't happen this year because of age. Yes, the vice president was Archbishop Vigneron of Detroit, Mm -hmm. who I believe is 73 or 74. So he wasn't eligible to be elected president. Now, it's not automatic that a vice president is elected, and there's still another election for years. Okay. But customary, maybe? Customarily, most of the time, not all the time, but the great majority of times, the vice president is elected president. So with that, having a new president and vice president and not that continuity of some overlap, do you anticipate any big shifts in direction or kind of culture or anything like that? No, because Archbishop Broglio has been, as I mentioned, secretary. So he's been very involved on the executive committee of the USCCB. And Archbishop Lurie has served as chair of many committees So he's been very involved in USCCB work. So I don't think it's going to be, I think both are very experienced for their positions. Mm -hmm. And then you did get elected to, as the chairman of the Committee for Religious Liberty? Yes, I've been chair of a few other major committees since I've been bishop. Beginning when Cardinal George of Chicago appointed me to be the chair of the task force on healthcare. Hmm. which I didn't have much background for. So that was a big learning curve. But then I was elected by my brother bishops to be chair of the USCCB Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family, Life, and Youth. Mm -hmm. And then I was elected as chair of the Committee on Doctrine Mm -hmm. and now elected as chair of the Committee on Religious Liberty, which I'm familiar with because when I was chair of the other two committees— I was ex officio member of the, or not a member, but a consultant to the Committee on Religious Liberty. So I've had six years of participation in the work of that committee. So it isn't brand new for me. Mm -hmm. It's an area that I'm very interested in. Obviously, religious liberty is an important value. And the committee looks on, kind of works to protect and defend religious liberty both on, in the United States on the national level, but also internationally. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's many violations of religious liberty around the world to the point of some being imprisoned, certainly persecuted for the faith, and then even in our country, efforts to restrict our religious liberty, not our freedom to worship, but our freedom to follow our own moral teachings, for example, in our Catholic hospitals and healthcare facilities or in our schools, mm-hmm. So we have to really be vigilant because of efforts to erode 
this very fundamental freedom that was from the very beginning of our country an important priority. And, and I feel blessed because, you know, having served as a consultant, like the major committee chairs are automatically members. That's how important it is. Plus, there are other bishops that I will be able to appoint as members, okay. and then I will be able to appoint consultants. It's the committee that I think has the largest number of consultants. Um, Why is uh, that? Because of the, well, scholars in the area of religious liberty, constitutional experts, okay. those kind of people who we really need to advise us. And I've been really impressed and gotten to know a number of them, including a couple from Notre Dame. And, mm. you know, that's a great resource for me as chair of the committee because they have this wonderful religious liberty initiative at in the law school at the University of Notre Dame. And, of course, I know the dean. I know the people involved in it. So yeah. they're going to be a great resource for me to consult. Good. Any thing on the horizon is how is this a three-year appointment it is but i'm only i'm chair elect for a year okay yeah when you're elected a chair you which puts me as a member of the committee this coming year okay as chair elect but then my actual term as chair will begin next november okay anything that you anticipate as being like documents released or statements coming out or at this point, I have not been on a consultant to the committee for the past year, so I've, I'm not really up to the current situation. Yeah. We obviously there's have to look at both activities in, th in all three branches of government. Mm -hmm. You know, how judges, how courts are ruling on religious liberty cases, so the judicial branch, also the legislative branch, laws regarding religious liberty, and then in the executive branch, because there have been executive orders seeking to limit our, our religious freedom, like the contraceptive mandate several mm -hmm. years ago that we fought so strongly. And, you know, there's just a lot going on in all three branches of government. And even now, there have been some executive orders. There are those who want to force us, for example, to perform abortions or direct sterilizations in our hospitals. There's efforts to interfere with our requirements for hiring those in our Catholic schools or other institutions where we insist on their upholding Catholic teaching. There's some who are saying that we, we can't discriminate in that way. So there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Do you anticipate this being more work or less work than the Committee on Doctrine? That's a good question. Committee on Doctrine was a lot of work. It really remains to be seen. I think, however, I enjoyed the work of the Committee on Doctrine. It was very, very important. I kind of think it's, it may be like equal. I don't think that we really get involved in like writing documents per se, okay. which is something we did with the Eucharist document and a document on hymnody uh, we did. Right. And uh, we're working on a document on gender. It's still in the works. And I'm still a member of the Committee on Doctrine mm -hmm. also, so I'll continue in that role. But I think, yeah, it's going to be a different kind of work. I think there's a lot of a big volume of things for me to learn or to have to keep up on. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned, judicial decisions, legislative activity, executive actions. So I think in that way I have to stay 
well-informed and we would, you know, be working, you know, lobbying for the church mm-hmm. in these areas and not just for the church, but for others whose religious liberty sure. is being infringed upon. Since you mentioned the the document on gender, is there an update there on when, um, when you anticipate it, that being out? Or I, I think the earliest would be March, and it won't be a document of the whole USCCB. It'll be a document of the Committee on Doctrine. But in order to publish it, it needs to be approved by the Administrative Committee mm-hmm. of the USCCB. So the next meeting of the Administrative Committee is in March. But we pretty much have what I would think is a final draft that hopefully will be approved. But I've thought that before, <laughs> and it's been delayed and delayed, but hopefully in March. All right. Well, I want to hear about the the three American women who maybe canonized saints one day, and also a bunch of other issues that you guys talked about, including Ukraine and, and a post-Dobbs world and, and what the Eucharistic revival update. There's, there was a revising of forming consciences for faithful citizenship and remarks from the apostolic nuncio. A lot lot we can talk about. So that'll be coming up here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives with products, services, and education. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it back to our members. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Been talking about the USCCB meeting, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops met out in Baltimore and a whole lot that went on there over the course of three days? Well, yeah, I had doctrine committee on Sunday and then Monday, no, three and a half days. Okay. So we began Monday morning and ended at noon on Thursday. All right. So one of the things that you talked about was revising the forming consciences for faithful citizenship. Mm -hmm. That's a, a mouthful. What are the plans for that revision? Well, as I think a lot of listeners would know, really these back in 2007, the U.S. bishops approved the statement forming consciences for faithful citizenship in anticipation of the 2008 election cycle. And since that time, that's been our primary resource regarding the participation of the faithful in public life. So it's really fundamentally a teaching document. But then through the years, there have been adaptations, supplementations to this document, and extra adaptation documentation usually takes place about a year before each U.S. presidential election. Okay. So that gives time for distribution. So in, in any event, the uh, through the years, we've kept reissuing the same document, mm-hmm. but sometimes with a, a letter at the beginning where we highlight, you know, maybe some particular issues that are being debated mm-hmm. in that election cycle, or, you know, because you want to stay up to date right. on, on what's happening. And um, so those are, that, those are what happened. There's also been additional 
guidance and teaching from Pope Francis. Well, first Pope Benedict XVI and then Pope Francis. So we want to also highlight their priorities. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do with the 2024 election? Well, so we started talking about whether we're going to just issue a totally new document. Some of the bishops, a minority, wanted that. The majority of bishops said, we really don't have time mm -hmm. because this would take a lot of work and much and great care. So the consensus was that after the 2024 election, we would begin work on a totally new document. Okay. But in the meantime, for the next presidential election, one year before, we will reissue forming consciousness for faithful citizenship, but also have a new introductory note like we've done before that will incorporate more recent papal teaching and some policy developments. We would also develop some resources like bulletin inserts, some videos mm -hmm. that would summarize the document because it is a little long and also incorporate, as I mentioned, more recent papal teaching and policy developments. Mm -hmm. For example, the last time abortion was, a Roe v. Wade was still right. in place. So we're in a different world now post after the Dobbs decision. So obviously we want to highlight certain things in that area. And, you know, we have new developments. We have the war in Ukraine and mm -hmm. various important issues going on in the world that we would most likely address in the introductory note and any other policy things that are happening. Again, religious liberty is mm -hmm. one. Two of the things you mentioned there were topics that came up, uh, Ukraine and the uh, post-Dobbs world. Care to share any on that? Well, Archbishop Laurie, who was just elected vice president, had been the chair of the USCCB Committee on Pro-Life Activities. So he gave an excellent presentation at our plenary session in Baltimore. It was entitled Radical Solidarity and mm. the Protection of Preborn Life. And I found it to be a very inspiring speech. He began with a story that I think really captured our attention about a, an immigrant from, or a refugee from Venezuela named Maria, who came to the United States because of the political unrest there, food shortages, the dire poverty, superinflation. And so when she arrived there, well, she had been a nurse in Venezuela, but she couldn't find work. And she got pregnant and her boyfriend kicked her out and her visa expired. And then because of that, immigration officers put a tracking device on her ankle and she found herself homeless and facing deportation and pregnant. So she was thinking about an abortion. Uh, she didn't think there was any other way out. So, but she, thanks be to God, she ended up at a pregnancy help center and she saw an image of her unborn son via ultrasound. And she was afraid, but more than anything, she wanted to give birth to her baby. She was worried that she might get deported before she gave birth. 
She was afraid that if she returned to Venezuela, her child would be malnourished because of the food shortages and poverty there and that he wouldn't get the basic medical care that he needed. So then she was thinking again about an abortion. So this heart-wrenching story Archbishop Laurie was sharing with all of us, a true story, but she got assistance at the Pregnancy Help Center, pro bono attorneys to help her with the immigration issue. Mm -hmm. The local parish helped her a lot and Catholic Charities assisted her. So she received all this support, including emotional support, housing, they got housing for her, medical care, and a work permit through obtaining political asylum. And with all that, she chose life for her son. Yeah. So that was basically how Archbishop Lori began his speech. But his main point to us was in this post-Dobbs world in, or nation, our focus uh, needs to be helping moms in need, helping pregnant women like this woman, Maria, who may have some very big hurdles and may feel abandoned, and how we need to be in radical solidarity with them. And of course, we already have, have the Walking with Moms in Need program that we want all of our parishes to, to participate in so that any pregnant woman in need who comes to the parish will receive help, referrals, et cetera, like we have here in our diocese with our women's care centers and, yeah. and other pro-life facilities. So in this post-Roe v. Wade time, I think this is really necessary because those on the other side, you know, are kind of accuse the pro-life side of not really caring about the woman, which right. is not true. Mm -hmm. It's a fallacy. I mean, it, especially when it comes to the church. I mean, we love the baby, we love the mother, mm -hmm. and we want the baby to live. We want the mother to give birth. We want to support the mother in whatever challenges she faces. We do not believe abortion is a, is the solution. Mm -hmm. it, actually, it's, it's, I think it was Pope, yeah, Pope Francis said, it's like hiring a hitman to solve a problem. Right. So I think when you think about how the Catholic Church, how we're so committed to addressing poverty and healthcare, education, housing, employment, people with addictions, domestic violence, criminal justice, all of these things, and we cannot remain silent about abortion. We need to advocate uh, passionately to protect the life of the unborn. And while not ignoring social problems that may push women towards having an abortion. So mm -hmm. Archbishop Lurie spoke about the need for radical solidarity with mothers and their preborn children. So that's, I, I found it to be a inspiring talk. We know how polarized our society is on this issue. And it's going to take a long time, I think, to overcome that polarization. You know, we need to work to build a culture of life. In the meantime, bearing witness to our love for the preborn babies and their mothers and to the dignity of human life. 
and we need to continue evangelizing and catechizing about this and also doing all we can to help people to understand that abortion is not the answer Mm -hmm. and is actually immoral. Mm -hmm. Uh, So building a culture of life, we need to try to win the hearts and minds of others, including some of our fellow Catholics who, who do not accept the church's teaching on the dignity and sacredness of the life of the unborn. Was there any kind of call to action specific or was he asking the bishops to do something as a group or was it more just a kind of a state of the, the nation? It was a state of the nation, I would say, but I think it was a call to action in the sense of, of really pushing the walking with moms in need mm-hmm. that as bishops, we've been encouraging all of our pa- parishes to to be on board with this. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, he gave kind of an added impetus uh, for that, I would say. So anything you anticipate changing here in this diocese? Well, we're very blessed. I mean, we'll continue. I think one of the fortunate things about our diocese is the amount of services yeah. that we have for pregnant women. It's really amazing. I mentioned the women's care centers do amazing work. And because of them, abortions have been cut dramatically in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. We also are fortunate because we have a legislature and a governor who have basically are very committed to protecting unborn human life and the services for women we need to continue to advocate for, which we do, the Indiana Catholic Conference does. We also have homes for places for homeless women who are pregnant in A Mother's Hope here in, in Fort Wayne and also Hannah's House in Mishawaka. So I think we can continue to do what we're doing, and I'm really grateful for how many of our people, our Catholic people, support these things, and also Catholic Charities, mm-hmm. which does amazing work through the ECHO program to assist uh, teenage girls who become pregnant, to help them to complete their high school education and not turn to abortion. Yeah. Another topic that you'd mentioned came up was Ukraine, the situation in Ukraine. Oh, what an inspiring speech that was from the Ukrainian Archbishop of Philadelphia, Archbishop Boris Gudziak, who actually gave the commencement speech at Notre Dame this past May, and I I know Archbishop Gusiak, and he thanked the bishops of the United States for all that we've been doing to support Ukraine, which has been under attack by Russia since February. And he spoke of the hospitals and the schools, cities, and, you know, the lives that have been lost, the places that have been destroyed since the attacks began and how yet the people of Ukraine have been so resilient. And he said they have felt the solidarity of throughout the world as they are kind of like David fighting Mm. Goliath in this. And he said, he was very, very strong. He said, Russia is the last of the European empires and scandalously it is the last to use the gospel the church to justify colonialism. Mm. 
Hmm. What he was talking about is the Russian Orthodox Church, which has, and the patriarch uh, who have kind of supported Vladimir Putin. And this Russia is so much larger, more powerful than Ukraine. And the archbishop said how Russia has tried to dehumanize Ukraine, calling its citizen Nazis to justify killing them. Hmm. He said, this is imperialism, basically. And he said, the people of Ukraine, though, are refusing to be subjects to this imperialism, and they're fighting. It's kind of like in the U.S. Revolution, give us liberty or give us death. Right. And he said that there's a profound embodiment of Catholic social doctrine happening in Ukraine, that it really has taken root, that Ukrainians are really much imbued with the whole spirit of of respect for the dignity of human life, solidarity, subsidiarity, the common good. And he said, this is, and you know, Catholics are what, 10 or 12% of the population of Ukraine. Hmm. But the Archbishop really wanted to thank the Catholic Church United States through us bishops for the great financial and spiritual support for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. That this has inspired Ukrainians to see the outpouring of support as they fight for their freedom, their mm -hmm. independence. So he asked us to continue that support. He asked us, you know, to not be, how would I say, as this has been going on for so long, to not lessen our support, basically. Yeah. And, and then some of the bishops after his speech gave their comments too. He received a resounding applause and standing ovation. Yeah. So is he normally invited to the conference as a Ukrainian Catholic? Yes. All the Eastern Catholic bishops in the United States are members of the USCCB. Okay. They are members. So as a Ukrainian Catholic Archbishop of Philadelphia, he's always at the meetings. Okay. Uh, another topic that came up was the Eucharistic revival. Is there an update there? Yes. Bishop Andrew Cousins, who's leading the revival gave an update. Things are progressing well. Materials continue to be published because we're in the diocesan phase, but getting ready for the parish phase. So materials for small group discussions, materials for 40 hours, and all the different aspects of, of our efforts to increase Eucharistic faith and devotion. He gave an update about the National Eucharistic Congress that will take place in in Indianapolis in the summer of 2024, uh -huh. and also the National Eucharistic Pilgrimage, where the Holy Eucharist will be carried in procession from four ends of the country, all converging in Indianapolis. So it was a very uplifting message. He also reported on some of the wonderful things that have happened already. Mm -hmm. And I think definitely this is something that the U.S. bishops are very united and excited about. And the Apostolic Nuncio uh, to the United States, Archbishop Christophe Pierre, also mentioned the Eucharistic revival in, in his talk to the bishops, which he says is a wonderful way to be a missionary and evangelizing church through this Eucharistic revival. You mentioned the procession from these four corners of the United States going to Indianapolis. How is that going to work? Is it, are they 
walking? Are they driving a procession or what's... They're walking. It'll be walking. The only parts where it's too, where it might be too difficult is long stretches through the deserts on the procession coming from the west. Okay. So at that point, I think they will ride through the desert. Okay. They don't want anyone to be in danger. Yeah. You know, so... So I'm not sure about the mountains. They a might little have, bit each day and handing off to the next. Yeah, I think there may be some or, who will walk the whole thing. I would think there'll be a, a group that would, mainly young people. Yeah. But others will join throughout, may uh-huh. walk. I mean, people are free to walk as far as they want. Yeah. And you can imagine logistically, this is, this is a huge effort. Happily, it will be coming through our diocese. Though. Oh, really? We don't know the exact route yet, but... The procession that's going to begin at the source of the Mississippi River, which happens to be in Bishop Cousins' diocese, which is okay. Crookston, Minnesota, that procession to Indianapolis from there will pass through our diocese. I think, I'm pretty sure it will pass th- through the campus of Notre Dame, uh-huh. but I don't know the, the, the route yet. All right. Well, we'll update when, when there is an update, I guess. Yeah. And then, let's see, we had three American women who are being considered for canonization. Yeah. When a bishop is opening an investigation of a cause for canonization, one of the first steps is he has to seek the opinion of the Conference of Bishops. As a matter of fact, as you know, last June, I initiated the, I accepted the petition of the Congregation of Holy Cross to begin the process for Brother Columba O'Neill. So I will have to present this to the U.S. bishops probably next June. Okay. So basically, it's just seeking whether they think it's wise to to go forward, mm-hmm. basically, so yeah. the bishops can vote. It's not like they have a decision. It's just seeking their advice. So in the three women, and there are a lot. I mean, I think, um, I think that there's over 80 U.S. candidates for sainthood at this oh, point. Oh, wow. So they've been introduced years ago, I mean, mm-hmm. or more recently. But I think like six, 55 dioceses, I think, mm-hmm. have um, presented causes. So we're keeping Rome busy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's exciting. So, yeah. And the, the three are women that were just proposed. One was the foundress of the Sisters of the Holy Spirit and Mary Immaculate, which was the first order of women religious in the state of Texas. And her name was Mother Margaret Mary Healy Murphy. Very interesting life. She was born in Ireland, and she came here to escape the famine back in the uh, 1800s. And her mother had already died. She was 12 years old when she came here. And after they arrived, her, her father died shortly thereafter, so she was taken in by relatives. She got married. She was only 16 years old, returned to Texas, and she ministered to yellow fever victims mm. while there. And she was always very concerned for the needy. She settled in Corpus Christi, Texas. There was an outbreak of yellow fever in the city, and the, her pastor died from it, and the daughter of another victim was entrusted to her, who had been caring for the woman. So she and her husband accepted a niece into their home whose parents had died. And then when her husband died, Margaret Mary Healy opened a tuberculosis sanatorium in Corpus Christi and then used her own money to establish a school for black children, Hmm. African-American. 
Then she moved to San Antonio, built the first church and school for black Catholics in the city of San Antonio, and then founded a religious order in 1893. They were called the Sisters of the Holy Ghost at the time. And basically their charism was to manifest the compassion of Jesus to the poor. So anyhow, she became then Mother Margaret Mary Mm -hmm. Healy Murphy. She died at the age of 74 in 1907. The order continues to serve in the United States and in Zambia. So I got into a lot of detail about her, but I was pretty impressed. I won't get into the detail about the other two. <laughs> the other two, Cora Louise Evans was a laywoman in California who was a wife, mother, and possibly a mystic. She was a convert from Mormonism. She had been a, a Mormon, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in any event... She led also a very inspiring life, and she was an evangelizer, and hundreds became Catholic because of her evangelizing efforts. The other candidate is another laywoman named Michelle Dupong from North Dakota. She died just seven years ago at the age of 31. Mm -hmm. She was a focused missionary. She was a student at North Dakota State University, and got involved in focus. And after she graduated, she became a focus missionary herself, ministering at college campuses in the Dakotas and Nebraska. After she finished that, she became the director of adult faith formation for the Diocese of Bismarck. And she was just a woman who was very committed to the task of the new evangelization. But, you know, She was diagnosed with cancer back in just after Christmas in 2014. And her perseverance, her joy, even in the midst of that battle with cancer, touched so many lives, not just her family, but many, many other people. And there have been a lot of letters testifying to favors that have been granted through her intercession. I think that's what propelled this cause. Very quick. Very quick. I mean, that seems, that's not normal, right? It's not normal, no. But got approved. By the well, yes, but I mean, forward. that doesn't mean that Rome's going right. to move quickly. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, there's some articles that we can link to about these women as well, if people want to check it out. There's something about like seeing that Michelle was born in 1984, like, Oh, wow. This sainthood thing is is possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe, really. Maybe I could do this too. Really. Uh, but, but like I said, I mean, there are like 80-some cases yeah. of Americans. And the Vatican is, the Congregation for the Causes of Saints, is very, very cautious and deliberate in yeah. this. So just because a cause is initiated and sent there, it may not move forward, or it may take many, many years. It's kind of unusual when it is quick, like Blessed Carlo Acutis. Yeah. It was pretty quick, but that was so amazing. And of course, after everything is studied and if it looks like the person had heroic sanctity, they're given the title venerable, that's a big, big step. And then a miracle is needed through their intercession before they're beatified. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Right. Or sometimes it takes many years till there's, because the medical exam examiners at the Vatican 
I mean, they don't want to have any doubt right. about it being a miracle. So there can be no natural explanation for it. Yeah. But you look at someone like Brother Columba, uh-huh. and we have thousands of letters, people testifying that of favors or, or cures through his intercession while he was alive. Mm. But I'm not quite sure how the Vatican's going to look upon that. Right. Like, are they going to, because we don't have like the medical scientific experts, right? right? It's just all these people mm-hmm. and, and the crowds who would come to see him. So I, now if he gets to the point of being venerable, we would need a new miracle. Uh-huh. But he had so many before, I think there'd be one really quickly. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's good at it. Uh, anything else from your trip? Any highlights or? No, it was, it was good. It was a long week. I was kind of glad to drive home, drive yeah. back. I drove, I didn't fly. It's just such a hassle to fly these days. What, and, what do you do on a long drive like that? Oh, you know, I, I, I'm on the phone a lot, uh-huh. you know, because of catching up with people and diocesan business over the phone and yeah. now I'm not holding my phone. I want everyone to know that I, it's, it's <laughs> right. Bluetooth or whatever. Uh-huh. And it's opportunity to, to pray, to reflect, listen to Catholic news on the radio. Yeah. If I can find it yeah. or other news. Yeah. Really. I don't mind the drive. Yeah. Uh, I do get, I have to get out and stretch here and there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for breaking this down for us. And uh, before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.